Welcome to No Better Death, the podcast that knows while you can die no better death than your own, that doesn't mean we can't take a look for the unusual and the noteworthy in the deaths of others. Each episode, we'll take an in-depth look at some out-of-the-ordinary deaths and the events surrounding them. This show will contain explicit language and graphic details. I'm your host, Sick Grayson. What's up, everybody? Hope you're doing okay out there during this polar vortex. Uh, We're not really getting anything too bad here in Colorado. It's just sort of business as usual. Has been really cold in the mornings when I get up to head to work, but other than that, can't really complain. Uh, Things are going fine here around the Grayson household. I hope you're all doing well. Um, As you can tell by the release date of this episode that I'm going more for trying to release them on Friday, Saturday, sometime in that area. Having a few more days during the week to get everything in order to sort of helps out a little bit. So you should probably start looking for these on Friday or Saturday. Uh, Nothing much uh, else to really discuss before we get into the episode. Uh, This one did take a lot of reading, man. It felt, which I know... Every episode of doing this show is a lot of reading, but for some reason, this episode felt like it was a lot of extra reading, and I had to rely pretty heavily on Wikipedia this week, which I don't usually do. I get nothing but the most basic of information from Wikipedia and try to use more reliable sources, Uh, but this week, uh, the topic, Wikipedia really seemed to have more information on all three stories I'm about to tell you, Uh, so pulled a lot from Wikipedia, a little outside what I usually do for the show. Uh, But it was really interesting. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together. Not so much because of the stories that happen. The stories that happen are horrible, but it is based in a world and a scene that I really enjoy, and that is concerts. I can't tell you how many concerts I've been to. I've lost count at this point. It's been my thing since I was like 14. Uh, My fuckhole stepdad and I worked for the Tupelo Coliseum. We got to watch whatever events we worked there. Uh, my friends and I, or my step-uncle and I, would drive the 45 minutes to Memphis from Pontotoc, Mississippi. That's where I lived. We'd drive up to Memphis to catch whatever shows were going down at the New Daisy or wherever concerts were going on. And once I got out on my own, I've always gone to shows. Uh, anywhere I've lived, Columbus, Ohio, Mississippi, the time I spent in Memphis. I've been to shows in South Carolina, Colorado, Gathering of the Juggalos in Illinois. I've easily seen over 200 bands. Uh, Like I said, at this point, I can't remember them all. I can tell you some of my favorites. Romstein, Godhead, and Crossbreed at the Newport in Columbus, Ohio. Full Devil Jacket, Dead Lights, Cold Chamber, and Typo Negative at the New Daisy in Memphis. The Guns N' Roses Not In This Lifetime Tour in Denver. I saw Nine Inch Nails for the first time on the day With Teeth came out. I saw them on release day, so that was really cool. I was at Riot Fest Denver the first time the Misfits took stage as the real Misfits in 33 years. I was there, dude, and it was sick. All good shows, and I could go on and on and on, uh, but it would probably start to sound braggish. Luckily, nothing tragic has ever happened at any concert I've attended. Uh, My wife and I did start to think we could get swept under feet at the Misfits show, Everyone in that complex rushed the stage when the Misfits came out. It was probably the largest crowd I've ever been in. And just by the nature of there being so many people, the crowd started moving as a whole, and us being lighter than the other people we were around, we started getting our feet stepped on. And that's when you go down. People start stepping on your feet, you get tripped up, you fall down, uh, and then you're done for. You're getting trampled. 
Uh, it was packed so tight, I could barely breathe. There wasn't enough room to take a breath, so we had to fight our way from about five rows from the stage to the back of this crowd. But it wasn't just that we moved to the back. There was no moving while the Misfits were playing. We had to fight our way out between songs. It took us until at least halfway through this set just to get out of the main cluster of thousands. And I saw some numbers for that show that said there were upwards of 30,000 people there from all over the world. I mean, people flew in from other countries to see the Misfits for the first time in 33 years. And I don't blame them. Uh, but yeah, that was probably the most dangerous concert I've ever been to. And nothing happened that I know of. No one got hurt. There was the potential for people to get hurt if someone had fallen down. Uh, so I've been lucky in my life to have never been seriously injured at a show. Bruises, cuts, a few punches to the face in the pit, definitely. Uh, in more recent years, I don't get in the pit as much, but back in the day, I was always in the pit. I've been flipped over a rail at Coal Chamber. I left Rammstein with fishnet pattern bruises down my arm from falling and getting stepped on. Uh, a body surfer fell on me during a Billy Idol set at Warp Tour back in the day, and it took a chunk out of the side of my nose that still never grew back in. I've been punched, kicked, elbowed countless times, but always made it home safe and in one piece. But as we're going to see today, others aren't always so lucky. Whether we're talking about building failures, bad weather, overcrowding, pyrotechnics gone wrong, shooters, bombs, etc., etc. Tragedy has struck at concerts, just as it does anywhere humans gather in mass since the inception of what we consider a concert. And we're going to take a look at a few of those incidents today. But what to lead with? You know, I always wonder what order to tell these stories in. Do I hit you with the biggest story first to grab your attention and get you into the show? But have you possibly bail out after the first big story? Or do I roll them out gradually and say what would probably be considered the biggest story for the last in an attempt to get you to stick around through the whole episode? But today, I will not be burying the lead. I'm going to come out with the heavy hitter of the show. Rest in peace. To the motherfucking man, Daryl Lance Abbott, a.k.a. Diamond Daryl, even more a.k.a. Dimebag Daryl. Daryl was born August 20th, 1966 in Arlington, Texas to mother Carolyn and father Jerry Abbott, a country musician and producer. Daryl took up the guitar when he received a Les Paul-style Hondo and a small amp for his 12th birthday. At 14, so 1980, he entered a cassette of his playing into a Dallas-area guitar contest. His tape was selected from over 150 entries to be in the top 15. Each finalist was invited to the Agora Ballroom in Dallas to play for the grand prize, which was a new Dean ML. And if you know Dime, you know Dean was his guitar of choice, and he has his own signature version, so this would have been the first place he was trying to get one of those classic guitars. His mom had to go with him because he wasn't old enough to get into the club alone, and he easily blew away the competition winning the Dean ML. Months later, when the contest ran again, he entered and won that one too. Plus, his dad had bought him a Dean ML the morning of the first competition, so he was sitting on three of these guitars. After the second competition, the contest sponsors asked him not to enter the next one so someone else could win. And I say, fuck that. If you got the skills and no one else does, the prize is yours. It's not your fault when you're better than everyone else. You're either gifted in ways others aren't, or the competition isn't practicing enough. You know, if you win the Super Bowl two years in a row, the NFL doesn't say, oh, you can't play next year because it's not fair to everyone else. 
Uh, the guitar he won at the first contest was sold to guitar builder Buddy Blaze to help Daryl buy a car. Buddy installed a Floyd Rose Tremolo, which is sweet, reshaped the neck, and applied a lightning bolt paint job. He would later give it back to Daryl, and it would serve as the prototype for his signature guitar with Dean, the Dean from Hell. His influences included Eddie Van Halen, Tony Iommi of Black Sabbath, Pete Willis of Def Leppard, Joe Satriani, and Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top, but above all, Ace Freely of Kiss. And that guy has inspired almost all of your favorite guitarists. Whether you like Kiss or not, you owe Ace Freely a thank you for inspiring your favorite guitarists. And here's where I got schooled putting this episode together. In a lot of the stuff I didn't know. I've always been a Pantera fan, but I didn't know how far back and how many lineup changes there had actually been. Uh, in 1981, Daryl, taking the moniker Diamond Daryl, formed Gemini, then changed the name to Eternity, then to Pantera. With his brother Vinnie Paul on drums, and a lineup that changed a bit in the early formation of the band, with the first solid lineup including Terry Glaze on vocals, Rex Brown on bass. The band was a metal glam outfit that released three albums, Metal Magic, Projects in the Jungle, and I Am the Night. And I've never heard of any of the first two names of the band or these three albums, nor this vocalist. After the third album, the band began to shed the glam and really lean into the metal part. And this didn't sit well with Terry, who left and was replaced with Phil Anselmo. And I didn't know about this either. Around this time, Dave Mustaine of Megadeth asked Dimebag to join his band, but turned down the offer when Dave refused to hire Vinny as the drummer. Pantera released the album Power Metal in 1988, and what many considered to be the first solidification of their groove metal sound with Cowboys from Hell in 1990. Vulgar display of power would come in 1992, followed by 1994's Far Beyond Driven. Oh, dude, this is like taking a walk down the path of my childhood right now. The release of Far Beyond Driven was about the time we would see Daryl's moniker change from Diamond to Dimebag. Also around this time, despite their rise to success, tensions were mounting between the band members and Phil Anselmo due to his drug use. In 1996, they released The Great Southern Trend Kill, and in 2000, they released Reinventing the Steel. In 2001, the band went on hiatus while Phil worked on Superjoint Ritual and Down, two other great bands. If you've never heard them, go check them out. And this caused a rift within the band as Pantera was kept waiting for Phil to be available, and they eventually said fuck it and broke up in 2003. Diamond Vinny would go on to form Damage Plan with Halford guitarist Pat Lockman on vocals and Bob Zilla on bass. And I do know Bob comes into play again with Hell Yeah, which was a super group uh, comprised of Vinny on drums, Chad from Mudvayne on vocals, and Tom from Nothing Face on guitar. Damage Plan released New Found Power in February 2004. This would be the band's only release. Vinny did say in a 2016 interview that there were five tracks recorded for the second album, but they weren't finished and are basically just his drums and Dimes' guitars. No clarification on if they had bass tracks or not, but there were no vocals. Vinny had thought about having some of Dimes' favorite singers, such as Chris Cornell and Rob Halford, do vocals for the tracks, but didn't have time to do it due to working with Hell Yeah. Uh, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Uh, as you know, not only is Dime dead, but Vinny's no longer with us either, and neither is Chris Cornell. So, 
Uh, between 1996 and 2004, Dime, Vinny, and Rex worked with David Allen Coe on a project called Rebel Meets Rebel, which was released in 2006. And if you don't know who David Allen Coe is, he's an old school outlaw country artist. Uh, I've actually seen him too on what was probably one of the weirdest lineups I've ever been to. Uh, Birmingham, Alabama. It was David Allen Coe, Dope, on their first major tour, opening for Kid Rock on the American Badass Tour. Uh, I think that, might, that was around 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, 2000, 2001. Anyway, uh, Dimebag would not live to see the release of Rebel Meets Rebel. On December 8th, 2004, the 24th anniversary of the murder of John Lennon, Damage Plan was on the Devastation Across the Nation tour with Shadows Fall and The Haunted, playing Al Rosa Villa in Columbus, Ohio. A crowd of about 250 people who had paid $8 a ticket. Try finding a ticket that cheap nowadays. Uh, 250 people were in attendance, and it sat through local openers Volume Dealer and 12 Gauge, in addition to Shadows Fall and The Haunted. 90 seconds into Damage Plan's set, a 25-year-old former Marine piece-of-shit pussy that we'll only refer to as Fuckface. I'm not giving him a name in this story, so get ready to hear the word Fuckface a lot. Fuckface jumped on stage, drew a 9mm Beretta M9, and shot Dimebag in the head as many as five times. At first, the crowd thought it was part of the act, but as Fuckface kept shooting, everyone realized this wasn't staged. Firing a total of 15 shots, Fuckface killed three other people. Jeff Mayhem Thompson, Damage Plan's head of security, was killed trying to subdue him. Audience member Nathan Bray was killed while performing CPR on Jeff and Dimebag and venue employee Aaron Hawk was also shot. Seven more were wounded, including Damage Plan's drum tech, John Brooks, who was shot three times trying to disarm Fuckface, and tour manager Chris Paluska, uh, and another audience member who jumped in front of the other band members was shot protecting them. Police were called at 10.15 p.m. and arrived at 10.18, Seven officers came through the front entrance of the venue and one through the back door behind the stage. Fuckface only saw the seven officers coming from the front. He had his gun to drum tech John Brooks' head about to pull the trigger when the eighth officer, James Nagemeyer, armed with a 12-gauge shotgun, fired one round of buckshot into Fuckface's fucky face, killing him instantly. Good thing, too, is this guy still had 35 rounds of ammo left. As police officers and detectives flooded Al Rosa Villa on December 8th, Vinny Abbott escaped into Damage Plan's tour bus. He climbed into Dimebag's bunk and wept. Early speculation about motive suggested that the shooter, who was once a fan of Pantera, might have turned to violence in response to the breakup of the band or the public dispute between Daryl and Anselmo, but these were later ruled out by investigators. In VH1's documentary Behind the Music, Damage Plan sound engineer Aaron Barnes stated that after shooting Dimebag, Fuckface was looking for Vinnie Paul, possibly planning to murder him too. Another conjecture was that Fuckface believed Daryl had stolen a song that he had written. This wasn't the first time he had engaged in onstage violence. About six months prior to the shooting, he had been in an altercation at a Damage Plan concert in Cincinnati in which he damaged $5,000 worth of equipment and had to be removed from the stage by security. He had been seen hanging out in the club's parking lot while the music pounded inside. A construction worker from Marysville, Ohio, a blue-collar suburb 25 miles northwest, 
He had stood six feet three and weighed more than 250 pounds. He wore thick glasses and a Columbus Blue Jackets hockey jersey over a hooded sweatshirt. Hey man, why aren't you watching the show, a fan asked him. I don't want to see no shitty local bands, he said. You can at least go inside and stay warm. No man, I'm going to wait for damage plan. Club manager Rich Cautella pegged him as a harmless hanger-on, one without a ticket. He was just a crazy fan trying to talk to the members of the band, Cautella said. One of my guys who helps to set up the bands eventually told him to leave. Instead, as Damage Plan took the stage, he jumped a six-foot-high fence and rushed into the club through a side door. Walking swiftly past pool tables, a bar, and the sound booth, he reached the left side of the stage. Witnesses thought he wanted to stage dive. The dude was way determined, said Billy Payne, the singer for Volume Dealer who saw him enter through the club. He was on a mission. He looked angry. He was walking like he was going into battle. Joe Dameron, bass player for Volume Dealer, thought the shooter shouted something about Pantera, but he wasn't sure. With the feedback, I didn't hear what he said. I saw him open his mouth to yell something, but I don't know what it was. He just looked determined. Aaron Benner, a fan who was standing nearby, said Dime was headbanging at the time and never saw the guy coming. He was doing his thing. He gets really into it, so he was blindsided. Caltella, who was tending bar, thought firecrackers had gone off at first. Others figured the speakers had popped or somebody had fired a cap gun. I thought they were playing a big gimmick, said Ryan Melquire, who was working security. People were pumping their fists, thinking it was a hoax. Caltella kept pouring drinks until the music stopped. Drummer Vinny Abbott, Daryl's brother, stood up behind his kit. Abbott's guitar began to emit feedback in a high-pitched shriek. A security guard tackled Fuckface, who continued to shoot into the crowd. One bullet grazed the arm of a volume dealer roadie, Travis Burnett, a burly former soldier who dropped his beer and ran toward the stage to try to disarm the shooter. I asked him, dude, what the fuck are you doing? He was like, get out of here, get away! As I went to grab him, and he shot at me, the bullet went through my shirt and I didn't even feel it. While most fans fled, one concert goer, Mindy Reese, a registered nurse from Columbus, rushed forward. I said, fuck this, I'm a nurse, he needs help. I did chest compressions for 15 to 20 minutes. I kept saying, dime bag, come on, come on, please stay with me. But he was already near death by the time paramedics arrived. According to people in Marysville, Fuckface was troubled but not prone to violence. He enlisted in the Marines in 2002 but left the Corps for unknown reasons 18 months later. After that, he worked on construction sites, in an oil change shop, and as a landscaper. He also played offensive guard for Lima Thunder, a local semi-pro football team. On the team bus, he could often be found with his headphones on listening to Pantera. November of the previous year, he was arrested for driving with a suspended license. By then, according to friends who talked to the Columbus Dispatch, he had changed. He had begun talking and laughing to himself. He told a friend that Pantera had stolen his songs and that he was going to sue them. Lucas Bender, manager of Bear's Den Tattoo in Marysville, across the street from Fuckface's house, said he was a frequent visitor. He got a tattoo on his right or left forearm, a big custom design tribal, said Bender. He also got his ear pierced about a week or two before. He came in on a daily basis. I tried to keep him away from the clientele. He kind of gave everyone a weird impression. Bender also says that Fuckface had told him he'd left the Marines due to mental problems, was taking medication, and may have been bipolar. 
He was infatuated with guitarists too. One of our tattoo artists plays guitar and he started trying to hang out with him. Dude probably literally dodged a bullet on that one. Daryl is buried with an Eddie Van Halen Charvel for some reason beside his mother Carolyn and brother Vinny at Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. Uh, I've been there. It was before Vinny died, so he wasn't there at that time. Uh, but I have some pics. If I can find them, I'll put them up on the website. He has a really cool stone uh, and a bronze, I don't know what you'd call it, marker? Or something. It, it, because it's not a headstone. It's laying on the ground. It's engraved with his face and some very kind words and like an image of his guitar and stuff. It, it's a really dope thing. Uh, go online and look it up if you haven't seen it. Or like I said, I'll just put up my pictures. But he has a really cool grave site. If you get a chance to go see it, definitely check it out. Uh, if you do, can I just put this out here for anybody who goes to visit graves? If you're one of the people who scratches and carves into the headstones and shit, please stop. It's great that you want to make the pilgrimage and pay homage to whoever you're going to see, but carving like, yeah, Tony was here into someone's grave is inexcusable. It's disrespectful to them, their family, uh... You know, leave it so everyone else can enjoy it, and those headstones aren't cheap. So if you're one of the assholes who thinks you have to carve some shit into someone's headstone when you go see them, knock it off. Dimebag was praised for his instrumental tone and was included in the 50 Greatest Tones of All Time by Guitar Player Magazine. Remembered for his amiable nature and rapport with fans, Abbott was described by all music as one of the most influential stylists in modern metal. The book Riffer Madness was compiled from Abbott's frequent appearances in guitar magazines and in readers' polls, and from the long-running Guitar World magazine column that he wrote. Ride for Dime, Inc., a nationally registered charity, was formed in 2005. It hosts annual motorcycle runs and concerts, with all proceeds going to Little Kids Rock and towards funding the Ride for Dime Scholarship Fund. A Ride for Dime is the only charity recognized and supported by the Abbott estate. I never know what to say about this one. I, I didn't know all the details going into it, uh, but now that I do know all the details, it feels even more senseless and pointless. It doesn't even say if the guy that shot him could play guitar or ever wrote a song. So very, very unlikely that this dude ever even wrote a single song for Pantera to steal. And if you're going to go after someone from Pantera, why specifically Dime and Vinny, you know? Why, why not go after Phil Anselmo? Which, not saying he should have done that, I'm just saying, why, why pick those two specifically? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, just way too young in his life, too. Dimebag still had a lifetime of things he could have done with music. I don't even want to think about what kind of legacy he could have left if he had been given the opportunity to live his whole life. He was just so talented, and with his brother by his side, they were unstoppable. You know, I don't think I've ever done this for anyone or any story we've ever covered, but I think I'm going to do uh, just a few seconds of silence here for Dimebag, and then we'll get on to the next story. It is in human nature to have extremely enjoyable feelings that make you feel guilty Join me, your host, the one and only Father Sin, every week while I delve into the inner workings of the human mind, in my own twisted and sinful way, on The Sinful Show, 
available wherever you get your podcast. All right, up next, and I'm probably going to be showing my age a little bit here, we're talking the Station Nightclub Fire of 2003. Do you remember the band Great White? You know, my, 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 once bitten, twice shy, baby. Great White. Well, if you don't, you're like 12 years old and you shouldn't be listening to the show any damn way. I remember because I was born in 1980s and hair metal was one of my first exposures to rock music. You want to know the first rock song I ever heard? I was eight and the video for Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar On Me came on TV during one of the short stints that my family actually had cable, probably stolen, and I was hooked immediately. Uh, Shortly thereafter, I heard Guns N' Roses for the first time, and that was it. I was a headbanger. To this day, I still think Guns N' Roses is the greatest band of all time. Uh, But yeah, I do go back to the hair metal days, so I definitely remember Great White. In 1977, vocalist Jack Russell met guitarist Mark Kendall and formed a band that changed names like three times between 77 and 79. In 79, Jack was arrested for shooting a maid in a home he was attempting to rob and was sentenced to eight years in prison, leaving Mark to keep the band going. And it did go through some lineup changes, another name change, uh, but all that's kind of irrelevant because Jack got out in 18 months just as George Lynch's band Exciter was stealing Mark's new vocalist. The lineup at the time, Mark, bassist Don Costa, and drummer Tony Richards voted 2-1 to one to let Jack back into the band. Not that it would matter, because those two would be gone soon enough, replaced by drummer Gary Holland and bassist Lauren Black. Their manager at the time, Alan Niven, who had overseen the release of Motley Crue's debut album, suggested that the band be called Great White after some kid at a show referred to Mark as Great White because of his white hair, white guitar, white jumpsuit, and white shoes. So the guitarist was just whited out, and that's how they got the name Great White. The band recorded a five-song demo released on Alan Niven's label, Aegean. Alan convinced local LA stations to play some of the songs, uh, putting them into rotation, and before long, their shows went from crowds of 100 or so to over 1,000. Their upward trajectory as an unsigned act culminated in a headlining gig at Six Flags Magic Mountain, where they played to over 6,000 people in 1983. Near the end of that year, they signed to EMI America and released their self-titled debut album in early 1984, followed by a UK tour with Whitesnake. You know Whitesnake. Here I go again on my own. Uh, And a US-Canada tour with Judas Priest. Lineup changes, blah blah, signed with Capitol Records, released Once Bitten in 1987, and that is the album that catapulted them into 80s hair metal success. They followed up with 1989's Twice Shy, which had their biggest hit, and I sang a line from that earlier. A fun fact, the song is actually a cover song originally done by Ian Hunter. Uh, They received a Grammy nomination, and the album went double platinum. Between 1990 and 1992, they released two more albums and kept touring around the world with bands such as Scorpions and Kiss. They left Capitol Records in 1993, released a record on Zoo Records in 94, and another on Imago Records in 1996. Why the label jumping? Because grunge. Nirvana killed hair metal, and most of the bands didn't fare well. They had to take shit deals at shittier labels just to get an advance to pay for studio time. 
then toured their asses off trying to pay whatever they owe the label and hopefully cover touring expenses to maybe have a dollar or two left to buy more hairspray. They released another album in 1999, toured with Rat, Poison, and LA Guns, then broke up in 2000. Most people seem to have bailed because of Jack Russell's drug use. In 2002, Jack and Mark, both being broke and having failed solo projects, agreed to tour as Jack Russell's Great White using Jack's solo band with Mark on guitar, playing mostly old Great White hits with some of Jack's solo stuff sprinkled in, and I believe they're actually on tour now or will be soon. I know they're playing a gig at the venue a few blocks from my house sometime this year. I won't be in attendance. Uh, anyway, the tour was more or less successful, and they decided to add extra dates for 2003. And this is where we get to the story of the Station Nightclub Fire, the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in history. The fire started just seconds into the band's opening song, the 1991 hit Desert Moon, when pyrotechnics set off by their tour manager Daniel ignited flammable acoustic foam around the stage by the drummer. The pyrotechnics were cylindrical devices that produce a controlled spray of sparks. Daniel had used three of them to spray sparks 15 feet for 15 seconds. Two were at 45 degree angles with the middle one pointing straight up. The flanking devices became the principal cause of the fire. The acoustic foam was installed in two layers with highly flammable urethane foam above polyethylene foam, the latter being difficult to ignite but releasing much more heat once ignited by the less dense urethane. Burning polyurethane foam instantly develops opaque, dark smoke along with deadly carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide gas. Inhaling the smoke only two to three times would cause rapid loss of consciousness and eventually death by internal suffocation. The flames were initially thought to be part of the act. The song's music video clearly shows flames blazing around the musicians and this was playing on a screen in the back, so it looked like the flames to the side of the stage matched the video that was being played behind them. Only as the fire reached the ceiling and smoke began to bank down did people realize it was uncontrolled. 20 seconds after the pyrotechnics ended, the band stopped playing and lead vocalist Jack Russell calmly remarked into the microphone, Wow, that's not good. This sounds like something I'd say, the building's burning down, I'm like, oh, that's not good. In less than a minute, the entire stage was engulfed in flames, with most of the band members and entourage fleeing for the west exit by the stage. By this time, the nightclub's fire alarm had activated, and although there were four possible exits, most people headed for the front door through which they had entered. The ensuing stampede led to a crush in the narrow hallway leading to that exit, quickly blocking the exit completely and resulting in numerous deaths. A total of 462 people were in attendance, even though the club's official license capacity was 404. A hundred people lost their lives and 230 were injured with about 200 of them being permanently maimed and disfigured, either from burns, smoke inhalation, thermal trauma, or trampling. Among those who died in the fire were Great White's lead guitarist Ty Longley and the show's MC, local radio DJ Mike Gonsalves. There's reason to believe that Longley and Gonsalves tried to salvage equipment during the early stage of the fire and lost valuable time to escape before dense, toxic smoke made breathing near impossible. Longley is believed to have initially made it out of the building but then re-entered in an attempt to rescue his guitar. Furthermore, a number of survivors later stated that a bouncer stopped people trying to escape via the stage exit, stating that the door was for the band only. 
The fire from its inception was caught on videotape by cameraman Brian Butler for WPRI-TV of Providence, and the beginning of that tape was released to national news stations. Butler was there for a planned piece on nightclub safety being reported by Jeffrey Derderian, a WPRI news reporter who was also a part owner of the station nightclub. WPRI-TV would later be cited for conflict of interest in having a reporter do a report concerning his own property. The report had been inspired by the E2 nightclub stampede in Chicago that had claimed 21 lives only three days earlier. At the scene of the fire, Butler gave his account of the tragedy. It was that fast. As soon as the pyrotechnics stopped, the flame had started on the egg crate backing behind the stage and it just went up the ceiling, and people stood and watched it, and some people backed off. When I turned around, some people were already trying to leave and others were just sitting there going, yeah, that's great. And I remember that statement because I was like, this is not great. This is the time to leave. At first, there was no panic. Everybody just kind of turned. Most people still just stood there. In the other rooms, the smoke hadn't gotten to them. The flame wasn't that bad. They didn't think anything of it. Well, I guess once we all started to turn toward the door and we got bottlenecked into the front door, people just kept pushing and eventually everyone popped out of the door, including myself. That's when I turned back. I went around back. There was no one coming out of the back door anymore. I kicked out a side window to try to get people out of there. One guy did crawl out. I went back around the front again, and that's when you saw people stacked on top of each other trying to get out the front door, and by then the black smoke was pouring out over their heads. I noticed when the pyro stopped, the flame had kept going on both sides, and then on one side, I noticed it came over the top, and that's when I said, I have to leave, and I turned around. I said, get out, get out, get to the door, get to the door, and people just stood there. There was a table in the way at the door, and I pulled that out just to get out of the way so people could get out easier, and I never expected it to take off as fast as it did. It just, it was so fast. It had to be two minutes tops before the whole place was black smoke. Thousands of mourners attended a memorial service at St. Gregory the Great Church in Warwick on February 24th to remember those lost in the fire. Following the tragedy, Governor Donald Calcieri declared a moratorium on pyrotechnic displays at venues that hold fewer than 300 people. Five months after the fire, Great White started a benefit tour saying a prayer at the beginning of each concert for the friends and families affected by the incident and giving a portion of the proceeds to the station family fund. In 2003 and again in 2005, the band stated they had not performed the song Desert Moon since the tragedy. I don't think I could ever sing that song again, said Jack Russell. While guitarist Mark Kendall stated, we haven't played that song. Things that bring back memories of that night we try to stay away from. And the song reminds us of that night. We haven't played it since then and probably never will. By 2009, however, the band had resumed performing the song. Two years to the day after the fire, band members Jack Russell and Mark Kendall, along with Great White's attorney Ed McPherson, appeared on Larry King Live with three survivors of the fire and the father of Ty Longley to discuss how their lives had changed since the incident. Following the fire, Great White split into two separate groups, one led by Russell and the other by Kendall. Neither version of the band performed in any of the six New England states for over a decade. Russell's group made its first New England appearance 12 years later at a Harvest Festival in Mechanic Falls, Maine, August 2015. 
The site of the fire was cleared and a multitude of crosses were placed as memorials left by loved ones of the deceased. On May 20, 2003, non-denominational services began to be held at the site of the fire for a number of months. Access remains open to the public and memorial services are held each February 20th. In June 2003, the Station Fire Memorial Foundation was formed with the purpose of purchasing the property to build and maintain a memorial. In September 2012, the owner of the land, Ray Villanova, donated the site to the SFMF. By April 2016, 1.65 million of the 2 million fundraising goal had been achieved and construction of the Station Fire Memorial Park had commenced. The memorial dedication ceremony took place on May 21, 2017. In the days after the fire, there were considerable efforts to assign and avoid blame on the part of the band, the nightclub owners, the manufacturers and distributors of the foam material, and the pyrotechnics, and the concert promoters. So basically, everyone was trying to sue everybody that could possibly be involved, and with good cause. Through attorneys, the club owners said they did not give permission to the band to use pyrotechnics. Band members claimed they had permission. A National Institute of Standards and Technology investigation of the fire under the authority of the National Construction Safety Team Act using computer simulations with FDS and a mock-up of the stage area and dance floor concluded that a fire sprinkler system would have contained the fire long enough to give everyone time to exit safely. However, because of the building's age, built in 1946, and size, many believe the station to be exempt from sprinkler system requirements. In fact, the building had undergone an occupancy change when it was converted from a restaurant to a nightclub, and this change dissolved its exemption from the sprinkler law, a fact that West Warwick fire inspectors never noticed. On the night in question, the station was legally required to have a sprinkler system, but did not. Outcry over the event has sparked calls for a National Fire Sprinkler Incentive Act, but those efforts have so far stalled. On December 9, 2003, brothers Jeffrey A. and Michael A. Derderian, the two owners of the station nightclub, and Daniel M. Bishile, Great White's road manager at the time of the fire, were each charged with 200 counts of involuntary manslaughter, two per death, because they were indicted under two separate theories of the crime, criminal negligence manslaughter resulting from a legal act in which the accused ignores the risks to others and someone is killed, and misdemeanor manslaughter, which results from a petty crime that causes a death. The brothers pleaded not guilty to the charges while Bashile pleaded guilty. The Derderians were fined $1.07 million for failing to carry workers' compensation insurance for their employees, four of who died in the fire. The first criminal trial was against Great White's tour manager, Daniel, the trial was scheduled to start May 1st, 2006, but Bashile, against his lawyer's advice, pled guilty to 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter on February 7th, 2006, in what he said was an effort to bring peace. On May 10th, 2006, state prosecutor Randall White asked that Bashile be sentenced to 10 years in prison, the maximum allowed under the plea bargain, citing the massive loss of life in the fire and the need to send a message. Speaking to the public for the first time since the fire, Bashile appeared remorseful during his sentencing. Choking back tears, he made a statement to the court and to the families of the victims. For three years, I've wanted to be able to speak to the people that were affected by this tragedy, but I know that there's nothing I can say or do that will undo what happened that night. 
Since the fire, I have wanted to tell the victims and their families how truly sorry I am for what happened that night and the part that I had in it. I never wanted anyone to be hurt in any way. I never imagined that anyone ever would be. I know how this tragedy has devastated me, but I can only begin to understand what the people who lost loved ones have endured. I don't know that I'll ever forgive myself for what happened that night, so I can't expect anybody else to. I can only pray that they understand that I would do anything to undo what happened that night and give them back their loved ones. I'm so sorry for what I have done, and I don't want to cause anyone any more pain. I will never forget that night, and I will never forget the people that were truly hurt by it. I am so sorry. Superior Court Judge Francis J. Derrigan Jr. sentenced Bashile to 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 years suspended, plus three years probation for his role in the fire. Derrigan remarked, The greatest sentence that can be imposed on you has been imposed on you by yourself. Under this sentence, with good behavior, Bashile would be eligible for parole in September 2007. Judge Derrigan deemed Bashile highly unlikely to reoffend, which was among the mitigating factors that led to his decision to impose this sentence. The sentence drew mixed reactions in the courtroom. Many of the families believed that the punishment was just. Others had hoped for a more severe sentence. On September 4, 2007, some families of the fire's victims expressed their support for Bashile's parole. Leland Hoisington, whose 28-year-old daughter Abby was killed in the fire, told reporters, I think they shouldn't even bother with a hearing, just let him out. I just don't find him as guilty of anything. The State Parole Board received approximately 20 letters, the majority of which expressed their sympathy and support for Bashile, some going so far as to describe him as a scapegoat with limited responsibility. Board Chairwoman Lisa Holly told journalists of her surprise at the forgiving attitude of the families by saying, I think the most overwhelming part of it for me was the depth of forgiveness of many of these families that have sustained such a loss. Dave Kane and Joanne O'Neill, parents of the youngest victim, Nicholas O'Neill, released their letter to the board to reporters, and it said, In the period following this tragedy, it was Mr. Bashile alone who stood up and admitted responsibility for his part in this horrible event. He apologized to the families of the victims and made no attempt to mitigate his guilt. Others pointed out that Bashile had sent handwritten letters to the families of each of the 100 victims and that he had a work release position in a local charity. On September 19, 2007, the Rhode Island Parole Board announced that Bashile would be released in March 2008. He was released March 19. As reported by the Associated Press, he didn't answer any questions and was quickly whisked away in a car. Following Bashile's trial, the station's owners, Michael and Jeffrey Derderian, were scheduled to receive separate trials. However, on September 21, 2006, Superior Court Judge Francis Derrigan announced that the brothers had changed their pleas from not guilty to no contest, thereby avoiding a trial. Michael received 15 years in prison with four to serve and 11 suspended plus three years probation, the same sentence as Bashile. Jeffrey received a 10-year suspended sentence, three years probation, and 500 hours of community service. In a letter to the victim's families, Judge Derrigan said that a trial would only serve to further traumatize and victimize not only the loved ones of the deceased and the survivors of the fire, but the general public as well. He added that the difference in the brothers' sentences reflected their respective involvement with the purchase and installation of the flammable foam. 
Rhode Island Attorney General Patrick C. Lynch objected to the plea bargain, saying that both brothers should have received jail time and that Michael should have received more time than Bashile. In January 2008, the parole board decided to grant Michael an early release. He was scheduled to be released from prison in September 2009, but was released June 2009 for good behavior. As of September 2008, at least $115 million in settlement agreements had been paid or offered to the victims or their families by various defendants, and I did find one source that said currently that number is closer to around $175 million. Everyone from the club, the band, the town, the manufacturer of the foam, pretty much everyone that could be sued was sued, and these families and victims have been paid something for their loss which, as we've seen in previous stories, doesn't always happen like it should. But for once, here we see someone paying up some amount that isn't a complete insult. Numerous violations of existing codes contributed to the calamity, triggering an immediate effort to strengthen fire code protections. Within weeks of the disaster, an emergency meeting was called for the National Fire Protection Association Committee handling code for assembly occupancies. Based upon its work, tentative interim amendments were issued for the National Standard Life Safety Code in July 2003. The tentative interim amendments, or TIAs, required automatic fire sprinklers in all nightclubs and similar locations with 100 or more occupants, plus additional crowd manager personnel, among other things. These TIAs were subsequently incorporated into the 2006 edition of the NFPA 101, along with additional exit requirements for new nightclub occupancies. It's left for each state or local jurisdiction to legally enact and enforce the current code changes. So they changed, as far as the national fire standards, they got that updated to try to keep some stuff like this from happening again, but it's up to each state or town to decide how to enforce that. So even though it's been changed on the national level, if the people at the town or the local police or fire department, whoever's responsible for enforcing this doesn't enforce it, it's really no good, which was the original problem to begin with. They changed this thing from a restaurant to a nightclub, and whenever they reclassified it, no one at the fire department or at the local level noticed, oh, hey, now that this is classified as this type of establishment, you need to have a fire sprinkler in here. If, the, if this town was going to enforce those kinds of things, wouldn't they have done it in the first place to prevent the fire to begin with? It doesn't do any good to change national laws or requirements for fire departments if people can't be trusted at the local level to enforce them. Jack Russell scheduled a benefit show for February 2013 to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the fire and announced that all proceeds would go to the Station Fire Memorial Foundation. Upon hearing of the event, the foundation asked that its name be removed, citing the animosity still felt by many of the survivors and surviving families. Jack Russell's management agreed that the show would be renamed and the proceeds would go to another charity. A permanent memorial at the site of the fire has been erected and is named the Station Fire Memorial Park. In August 2016, the site was reported to have been used as a pokey stop to the uproar of victims' families. The season one episode of Cold Case titled Disco Inferno was based on the station nightclub incident. Last year was the 15th anniversary of the fire. 
There are a few articles out there that recount the tragedy with commentary and updates from its victims, fire responders, etc., etc. And if you're interested in that, I encourage you to go Google them, check them out. But for the sake of brevity, I'm not going to cover the more recent articles on the show. And that is the story of the Station Nightclub fire. And with that, we're going to go to five fast facts about concerts. And these aren't so much facts about concerts in general as it is just short quips about specific concerts and bands. One, in 1971, a crazed fan shot a flare gun towards Frank Zappa and his band during a concert in Switzerland. The resulting fire injured several audience members, melted the band's equipment, and destroyed the venue. This incident was the inspiration for Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water. Two, Nina Simone, age 12, at her first concert debut at a classical recital, refused to play until her parents were allowed to sit in the front row where they sat originally before being told to move to the back to make way for white people. 3. Ryan Adams was once requested to play Summer of 69 at a concert. Ryan then ordered the lights be turned on, found the fan who made the request, paid him $30 cash as a refund for the show, and ordered him to leave, and said he wouldn't play another note until the guy was out. 4. Weird Al's parents both died on the same day of carbon monoxide poisoning. Only hours later, he performed a concert and started by saying, Since my music had helped so many of my fans through tough times, maybe it'll work for me as well. 5. In 1957, Elvis asked his audience at a Seattle concert to please rise for the national anthem. He picked up his guitar, leaned in, shook his hips, and began playing his biggest hit, You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog, and the crowd went wild. A 15-year-old Jimi Hendrix was in the audience. And that is the five fast facts about concerts. Moving on to story number three, we get in the way back and head to Cincinnati, Ohio, December 3rd, 1979. We're talking about The Who. Now, The Who were a little before my time, and I've never really listened to their music. I don't even know if I could name a song by The Who. And for a guy that knows his music, this is a massive blind spot. Self-inflicted, really. You know, in the digital age, I could just go on YouTube and listen to their stuff. But I've made it this far without it, and I'm just fine. So at this point, it's more like a record. If I give in now and listen to The Who, I lose the record. It's kind of like how I didn't watch Star Wars until I was 30. It never really came up, and I've always been more of a Star Trek person, so I never got around to seeing them. And at a certain point, having not seen Star Wars became a record, like I was the only person on the planet who hadn't gotten around watching them. And if I gave in, I'd lose my record. But my wife found the gold VHS box set at a pawn shop for 50 cents and had me watch them, and I was immediately in love. Not sure why she wanted me to watch them. She doesn't even like Star Wars, but getting off off topic here, point being, I've never listened to The Who. I understand they're this legendary band, and I lose cool points for not being familiar with their stuff, but I'm just keeping it real. I'd rather lose cool points than lie and be like, yeah, guys, I totally love the what. I mean, The Who. You know, I do know their drummer, Keith Moon, is supposed to be a badass on the beats, but that's about it. However, even without knowing their music... I did know about this incident, and if you don't, you're about to get shooled. Yes, shooled. As always, I gotta give you the history. I'm not gonna get into the minutiae of the details. Uh, These guys have a pretty detailed backstory. 
that would be way too long for one episode. So I'm just going to give you a general overview for those who may not know and then into the, the dead, deady, dead stuff. The Who formed from the ashes of a previous band, The Detours, in 1964 with singer Roger Daltrey, guitarist-singer Pete Townsend, drummer Keith Moon, and bassist John Entwistle, who sounds like he'd be a Harry Potter character. Professor Entwistle will be taking over potions this year. Considered one of the most influential rock bands of the 20th century by everyone but me, they've sold over 100 million records. Their influences included a bunch of bands I've never heard of that sound like 1950s greaser gangs that race each other in the town square on Saturday nights. And with the help of some nepotism, the band already had a management deal and were playing regular gigs by the time they transitioned from the Detours to the Who. Through the Detours in the first year as the Who, the band played cover songs at venues such as social clubs and whatnot but were encouraged by new managers to write their own material. Around this time, Pete accidentally broke the headstock of his guitar on a low ceiling during a show. Angry, he smashed the guitar on stage, grabbed another, and kept playing. Fans returned the next week, hoping to see more of the pointless smashing of gear, which don't smash gear, man. If you're so baller you can just trash a guitar, you could also just give that guitar to an, inspire, uh, an aspiring musician in the crowd that can't afford one. You know what I'm saying? I've never understood the point of trashing gear. Anyway, the audience wanted more gear smashing the next week, so Keith trashed his drum set on stage. And this, simple things, man, simple things, this really helped boost their reputation as a hard act with a live show that had to be seen. In late 1964, Pete debuted his first song, the Kinks-inspired classic, I Can't Explain, which was very quickly sold to Decca Records and became popular on pirate radio stations, which landed them a performance on the TV show Ready Steady Go. I Can't Explain was followed by Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere. Both singles hit the UK Top 10. And this didn't sit well with Daltrey, who by all accounts sounds like a domineering asshole that didn't want anyone in the band to be friends with each other. He treated it like a business, like, hey, we're going to play covers at weddings and bar mitzvahs and shit and split the money so we don't have to work. But everyone else was leaning towards pop slash rock success with original material. At one point, he assaulted Keith and the band gave him the boot. They let him back in shortly thereafter on the condition the band be made a democracy. The single My Generation, and see, I do know this song, so I know one of their songs, would be the one that launched them into fame. Releasing albums, touring, playing Monterey, Woodstock, getting paid, all that kind of stuff just started coming right after my generation dropped. Fighting with each other the whole time. They got arrested for trashing a hotel room in 1973. They released a movie in 75. Uh, that same year, they set a record for the largest concert with 78,000 people in attendance. And the next year, they set the record for loudest concert at over 120 decibels. They took most of 77 off while Keith Moon got fat and really, really into drugs and began recording the album Who Are You in January 1978. That album would be released August of that year and they would start touring for it in September. September 6, 1978, Moon went to a party thrown by Paul McCartney for Buddy Holly's birthday, after which he took 32 tabs of clomethazole, uh, which he was taking to fight his alcohol withdrawals. He passed out sometime in the early hours of September 7th and was found dead later that day. 
They replaced Moon with Kenny Jones. They finished two more films in 79 and were on the cover of Time that December. Also that December, the Cincinnati tragedy. The Who were in the midst of the United States portion of their 1979 world tour, which began in September with a total of six dates split between the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey and Madison Square Garden in New York. The band then took some time off and would resume the tour on November 30th at the Auditorium of Detroit Masonic Temple. The Cincinnati concert was the third show played in this portion of the tour after a concert the night before at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena. The concert was a sellout with 18,348 tickets sold. The majority of these seats, over 14,000 of them, were unassigned general admission tickets that were first come, first served. Yes, GA seating. I know thee well. It's the cheapest tickets in the house. A few hours before the show, a sizable crowd had already gathered outside the front of the arena. Around 7,000 people were there by 7 p.m. Entry to the arena was through a series of individual doors along the front of the building, as well as a few doors at each side. The doors weren't opened at the scheduled time, causing the crowd to become increasingly agitated and impatient. During this time, the Who undertook a late sound check, and some members of the crowd mistakenly believed that the concert was starting. People in the back began to push toward the front, and this is around 7.15. Only two doors were opened rather than all the doors at the front of the building, so the crowd pushing from the back, trying to go into two doors, you get a bottleneck, and what, I mean, what happened with the fire we just talked about, and what happens in any other scenario we've discussed where a mass crowd tries to run through a narrow escape. People get trampled. Eleven people were unable to escape the dense crowd pushing toward them and died by asphyxiation and injuries sustained when being trampled. Twenty-six other people reported injuries. The concert went on as planned, with the band members not being told of the tragedy until after the performance. And that's fucked up. Someone should have told them. But hey, had they not gone on, someone would have lost money, right? We can't have that. The following night, a lengthy segment on the tragedy aired on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite examining violence at rock concerts. Guitarist Pete Townsend was interviewed by CBS News correspondent Martha Tichin, comparing crowd reactions at concerts to football and boxing matches, calling them high-energy events. This next section is a large chunk of a Rolling Stone article written about the event in early 1980 uh, and shows that a concerned concert-goer had voiced concerns over concert safety almost three years prior. Unfortunately for this guy, those concerns went unheard. At about 7.15 on the evening of December 3, 1979, Larry Maggid sat down to dinner with Frank Wood in the luxurious Beehive Club, a private club in the upper reaches of Cincinnati's Riverfront Coliseum. Wood, who is general manager of the city's premier rock station, WEBN-FM, remarked to McGid, who is head of Electric Factory of Philadelphia, one of the country's leading rock promoters, that the crowd streaming onto the Coliseum floor far below them for that evening's Electric Factory promoted Who concert seemed to be quite orderly. A happy crowd, he said. Not at all like the rabble that had disrupted previous chainsaw concerts there, like the Outlaws fighting crowd and Led Zeppelin's mob. The crowd below them was sprinting to get as close as possible to the stage in the grand tradition of festival or unreserved seating. By agreement of the Coliseum management, the Electric Factory, and the Who, 
Mostly general admission tickets have been sold. Supposedly 3,578 reserved seats in the lodges at $11 each and 14,770 general admission tickets at $10 each. A few of those thousands of young people, the youngest known was four years old, had blood on their shoes as they ran happily down the concrete steps to the pit, the seatless area in front of the stage where the true fanatics stand throughout the show, but no one noticed. Some of the people who paused, dazed beside the green and white pizza stand just past the nine turnstiles at the main entrance had no shoes on at all, and some had lost other bits of clothing. But other than that, inside the hall, it just seemed to be business as usual. The familiar ragtag rock and roll army staggering into the hall after five or six hours of waiting outside in the cold for the doors to open and keeping warm and happy with herbs and beer and wine in each other. Maggot and Wood continued their leisurely dinner. They still had plenty of time before the Who would come on, which would actually be about 20 minutes after the scheduled starting time of 8 p.m. because the band would be preceded by clips from the film Quadrophenia. Cal Levy, who runs Electric Factory's Cincinnati office, cruised the aisles. Things looked okay to him. He had noticed at about 1.30 that afternoon that a large crowd was congregating around the main entrance, two banks of eight glass doors each situated in a large V. Levy had found Coliseum Operations Director Richard Morgan and asked him to put into effect a special security procedure they sometimes used, which was to station guards at ramp entrances and allow only ticket holders onto the plaza at the main entrance, thus eliminating the gate-crashing element. The Coliseum's entry level, the concourse and plaza, is reachable only by a bridge from adjacent riverfront stadium where most people park and by ramps from the street level. There were no police on the spacious plaza at 1.30. Levy suggested to Morgan that some should be there. 16 arrived at 3 p.m., and by 4 p.m. there were 25. The Coliseum hires off-duty police to patrol the outside, and for security within the Coliseum, they employed guards from the Cincinnati Private Police Association. At about 6.30, Lieutenant Dan Minkus, who headed the 25-man detail outside, decided that the 8,000 or so people who were now packed around the banks of doors were beginning to present a problem. The doors weren't scheduled to open until 7, but the crowd could hear the Who conducting its sound check and wanted in. It was 36 degrees and the wind coming off the Ohio River made it feel much colder. Minkus later said he told Levy and Morgan to open some doors. Levy told him the doors couldn't be open till the sound check was over. Minkus was also told there weren't enough ticket takers. Morgan, as is the case with all Coliseum employees, has no comment. At 7 p.m., the Who left the stage. No one inside the Coliseum knew that while they ate dinner and conducted business as usual and waited until the appointed time to admit the animals just outside those front doors, the horror had already begun. A horror under a full moon. A horror of chilling magnitude that will probably never be fully explained. On June 28, 1976, a young man named Richard Klopp sat down to his typewriter in his apartment on Auburn Avenue in Cincinnati. He was slow to anger, but he was angry. That morning, he had gone out bright and early to buy tickets to see Neil Young and Stephen Stills at the Coliseum. He got to Ticketron an hour ahead of time because he wanted good seats, only to find that tickets were sold out because they had gone on sale three days before the date advertised by Electric Factory. Klopp was already unhappy about the last two Electric Factory shows he'd been to, so he just said, by God, I'll send them a concerned citizen letter. 
man, wasn't that such a cute time in America when, when you got mad about something, you could just say, I'm going to write a letter and someone will respect me. Try that shit now. And just to be sure they didn't blow him off as some rock druggie, he decided to send carbon copies to the city council, WEBN, Ticketron, and to the Cincinnati Public Safety Director. He wrote, The two concerts that I have attended were both sold out on a festival seating or general admission basis. What this means for the promoter is more money. For the concert goer, this means that he'll probably have to sit in the aisles or on the floor, jeopardizing his safety and the safety of others. If a fire or general panic were to break out, many, many people would be trampled to death. Because civil people like to avoid these kinds of conflagrations, many concert goers make a point of arriving at the Coliseum two, three, and even four hours before doors are scheduled to open. At the Paul McCartney concert, for example, I arrived at 5.30, two hours before the doors were to open. After a span of two hours, several thousand people had congregated on the plaza in front of the doors. When they were finally opened a half hour late, the mass of people pressed forward, literally crushing those by the doors. This is what happens when tickets are sold on a festival seating basis, and it's no festival. So that was this guy's complaint. On the night of December 3, 1979, as Richard Klopp was caught up in the horror on the plaza and saw his wife swept away from him under the crush, it didn't immediately occur to him that what he had forecast was suddenly happening to him. He was just trying to survive. Klopp is 6 feet 2 and weighs over 200 pounds, but he went down. The pressure from those behind him toppled him. He was flat on his face on the concrete, and those marching, charging feet were all around him. It was no great comfort that city councilman Jerry Springer had actually replied sympathetically to his letter. No one else did, and Springer never actually was able to get anything done. Because he's fucking Jerry Springer. What Klopp felt oddly, as he wondered whether he would live or die, was anger at Cincinnati's establishment at the forces that made him get a general admission ticket when he wanted a reserved seat, at whoever it was that wouldn't open those doors to relieve the crowd pressure. He seldom went to rock concerts anymore, but he had really wanted to see The Who and had gone to Ticketron an hour early. All tickets had been sold by the time he got to the window. He saw scalpers buying 100 tickets each. Klopp ended up paying $60 for tickets for himself and his wife. Again, though, try getting two tickets to a decent show under 60 bucks these days. Unless it's a small band, it's not going to happen. I understand the ticket was only supposed to be $11, but 30 bucks for a ticket to see a legendary band is still not a bad deal. You don't even want to know how much I had to pay to get my wife a ticket to Gorillas, or how much we've paid for Nine Inch Nails tickets before. It was it was in triple digits. I'll say that much. You want to complain because you you had to pay sixty dollars for two tickets. He had gotten to the plaza at about two forty that afternoon because he wanted to be sure they got good seats. He had brought a book with him to read. That book, Structuralist Poets by Jonathan Culler, was still in his right hand as he lay on the concrete. Someone miraculously helped him to his feet, and he was back in the crush, his arms pinned to his side. At one point, he was within five feet of a closed door, but he had no control over his movement. At times, his feet were off the ground. Despite the cold, he was drenched in sweat. He couldn't breathe. See, this is how I felt at that Misfits show, man. He and everyone around them had their heads tilted straight back, their noses up, trying to get some air. He noticed that an actual steam, a vapor, was rising off the crowd in the moonlight. 
He would later be angered to read that it was a stampede because to him it was a concentration of too many people in too small a space with nowhere to go but forward. People in the back were yelling, one, two, three, push, but they didn't know people in the front were falling. There was little noise. Some people tried to calm those who were panicking. Some shouted, stay up, stay up or you're gone. Some chanted, open the fucking doors. The forward crush continued and pressed up against those closed doors. The crush had started at around 6.15 and ground on for an hour and a half or so. Pop noticed that there were actual human waves swaying like palm trees in a hurricane. He saved his life by seeking out the eye of the hurricane and he was swept out of the crush. He couldn't find his wife. He ran to the first policeman he saw and shouted, What are you doing? People are getting trampled up there. The policeman looked at him and asked, What do you do for a living? Klopp replied, almost in shock, Working on a PhD in language. The policeman said, Well, you just used a dangling participle. Klopp, caught up in the absurdity, said, I think I know more about language than you do. The policeman smiled. Well, don't tell me how to do my job then. Klopp lost his temper. People are getting hurt. The policeman said, well, we can't do anything. Klopp finally got inside and found his wife. This is why I couldn't be a cop. I would probably be this cop, someone talking to me, and I'll, I'll just be like, yeah, you just used a double negative. You're obviously an idiot and have no clue what you're talking about in regards to anything in life. Be gone. And then, you know, 11 dead bodies, which is why I never uh, applied to be a police guy. And also, they're all assholes. A few feet away, Mark Helmkamp was pleading with a policeman to do something. He said to the cop, Here, take my ID and bust me for false information if you don't believe me. He said the policeman told him to move along. A day later, Helmkamp was still furious. I was greatly disturbed by WCPO-TV's depiction of us as a drug-crazed mob. There were too many people and just two doors open. It was an incredible bottleneck. It was a slow squeeze, not a stampede. I was stuck in it for 45 minutes. I went down twice and wasn't sure that I would make it. I saw guys with blue lips. They couldn't get any oxygen. I saw, I think, four ticket takers after I walked over all the shoes to get in. I couldn't keep my feet on the ground the whole time. I kept my arms in front of my chest to keep from getting crushed. People were climbing up on other people's shoulders. Some people went berserk and started swinging their elbows. That was the only blood. There was no group panic. After I saw the dead people, it sunk in. Dead. Just dead. It pissed me off to see Uncle Walter Cronkite blaming us for this. The doors were officially opened at 7.05 according to eyewitnesses. Four doors out of the 16 were open and two of those were closed and blocked at times by guards with billy clubs. From where he was in the crowd, Phil Sheridan saw only one door open. It looked like they attempted to open more, but the crowd was so tightly packed it was useless. I was maybe 15 rows of people back staring at this door, and it hung like about 6 inches open, and they finally sprung it open, and that's all I remember till I got inside. I could see people smashed up against the doors that weren't open. I had a hold of my girlfriend, and my buddy grabbed me by the shoulders, and I took him by the hand, and we started to make our way through the turnstiles. Is it turnstiles? Turnstiles? I, I never know how to pronounce that. Well, in that 10 or 15 seconds it took us to get our act together, we were now inside between the doors and the turnstiles, and the door was a frenzy, and they're still trying to take the tickets. God, it was insane. I was three abreast in this goddamn turnstile, which was only 18 inches wide. People were getting hurled in and shoved through them, and the ticket takers were still saying, Hey, where's your ticket? 
The initial rush came at about 6.30 because that's when people smelled blood, you know, the magic hour. They're finally going to open the doors for us. There was a continuous pushing until 7, and then the doors opened shortly after that. God, this one girl, it must have been 20 minutes before the door opened, and all of a sudden, I feel a tug on my arm. It's this girl, and her head was at my waist, and she said, Excuse me, my feet are back there somewhere. She was horizontal. I went back out to look for my friends. I saw, and this is after the show started, which was about 8.20, I saw the same scene. It was still crazy. It was crazier between the outside doors and the turnstiles than it was outside, because by then people were really going for broke. I found my friend Bill, and he said he saw people going over the tops of the doors. He saw bodies piled in front of the door, and people were going over them and around them any way they could. At about 9, I saw more waves of people. I looked outside and saw what must have been thousands of dollars worth of personal articles strewn everywhere. These terrible piles of shoes, shoes trapped in that chain-link fence behind the turnstiles. I wonder about the kinds of injuries that weren't reported. The 25-man police force outside finally found the first body at 7.54. So these people could have been dead for almost an hour just laying there on the ground getting walked over because they were too impatient to go in orderly and the venue had waited too long to open other doors. After the ambulances and the fire department and the fire chief and the mayor and the city safety director and the flying squad from the Academy of Medicine and additional police and TV crews and everybody else got there, goddamn, it's a parade, they finally understood that this was serious. Cincinnati proper put on its serious face. TV crews were asking onlookers if drugs and alcohol hadn't caused this stampede. And Mayor Ken Blackwell, it was his first day on the job. This isn't the kind of thing you want to go down your first day on any job, right? Was summoned from his dinner with House Speaker Tip O'Neill and said it looked to him like this awful tragedy had been caused by festive seating. It was his decision to continue the concert lest the many thousands inside riot if the show were stopped. Promoter Larry Maggid said he first learned of the trouble at 8.45 from a Coliseum employee and went backstage to tell the Who's manager, Bill Kerbishley, that there were four dead, two ODs and two crushed, according to Kerbishley. The fire marshal arrived and said he thought there was a mass overdosage. He wanted to stop the concert. Then he learned that the deaths were due to asphyxiation and that people were still being treated on the plaza level. Kerbishley told him it would be senseless to stop the concert, that there could be a riot, and people might stampede back across the plaza. The fire marshal said, I agree with you totally. By the time the show was over, Kerbishley knew of 11 deaths. He told the Who that something serious had happened and they should hurry their encore. After the brief encore, he took them into the tuning room and told them of the deaths. They were devastated. Initially, we felt stunned and empty, said Roger Daltrey three days after the concert. We felt we couldn't go on, but you gotta. There's no point in stopping. Lieutenant Minkus said 16 doors were opened and Cal Levy echoed that. Electric factory attorney Tom Gould said 9 to 11 doors were open and Roger Daltrey said 3 were open. Dozens of eyewitnesses told Rolling Stone that never during the trouble were more than 4 doors open and that only 2 were open most of the time. The Coliseum management still refuses to say how many tickets were sold, how many guards were on duty, and how many ticket takers or ushers there were or anything else. Kerbishley said Electric Factory paid $7,800 to the Coliseum for ushers, ticket takers, interior security, and cleanup. 
including emergency exits, there are 106 doors at the Colosseum. So why at times were only two of those doors open? In Providence, Rhode Island, Mayor Vincent A. Cianci canceled a scheduled performance of The Who at the city civic center that same month. This was despite the fact that the Providence venue had assigned seating. 33 years later, the band returned to Providence and honored tickets from the 1979 show that was canceled. The families of the victims sued the band, concert promoter Electric Factory, and the city of Cincinnati. The suits were settled in 1983, awarding each of the families of the deceased approximately $150,000, which would be about $375,000 in today's money and approximately $750,000 to be divided among the 23 injured, and that total would be about $1.9 today. The city of Cincinnati also imposed a ban on unassigned seating on December 27th, with minor exceptions for the next 25 years. The incident was the subject of a book, Are the Kids All Right? The Rock Generation and Its Hidden Death Wish, as well as a second season episode of WKRP in Cincinnati called In Concert. It also inspired scenes in the film Pink Floyd's The Wall, whose 1982 premiere was attended by The Who's Pete Townsend. In 2004, the city of Cincinnati permanently repealed its long-standing ban on unassigned seating, a move which has been criticized by some. A temporary exemption of the ban had been made for Bruce Springsteen in 2002. The goal of lifting the ban was to attract more big-name acts. However, the city now mandates there must be nine square feet per person at a venue, and the number of tickets sold for each event is adjusted accordingly. What venue anywhere can each person have nine square feet? I've never been to any of these venues where you get nine square feet. You're lucky to have a spot that your body fits in at all. Paul Wertheimer, the city's public information officer at the time of the tragedy, went on to serve on a task force on crowd control and later founded Crowd Management Strategies in 1992, a consulting firm based in Los Angeles. In 2009, 30 years after the tragedy, rock station WEBN aired a retrospective on the event, including clips from the news coverage. In 2014, Pearl Jam played in the city and acknowledged the tragedy. They dedicated the cover of the Who's The Real Me to those who died. Pearl Jam experienced a similar tragedy in 2000 when nine people died in a crush during their concert at Roskilde Festival. On the eve of the 35th anniversary of the tragedy, Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley promised to have a historical marker on the site of the tragedy. The marker was dedicated at U.S. Bank Arena on December 3, 2015. The Showtime series Roadies dedicated an entire episode to the event. The episode The City Whose Name Must Not Be Spoken showcases the roadies of a fictional band completing many rituals after someone on the tour bus mentioned Cincinnati. The Who released a couple more albums, broke up in 1983, reunited for a short tour in 89, played a few random shows here and there with various members, uh, toured in 2002 and was gearing up for a tour or toured in 2000 and was gearing up for a tour in 2002 when Entwistle, the day before the first show, was found dead of a cocaine-induced heart attack at the Las Vegas Hard Rock Hotel. They got a fill-in basis, did the tour, released a new album in 2006 and toured for that. 
Played the 2010 Super Bowl, did a tour in 2012, and a tour in 2015 that was supposed to be their last, but ended up doing another in 2016. And this year, 2019, they've announced a new album and a tour in the works. And that, ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between and outside is Killer Concerts Part 1. On the way out, I'm going to play a couple news clips. One is a news report from the night of the trampling with statements from some people who were there and a statement from Pete Townsend. And the other is a news report from the following night. NoBetterDeath.info for all info on No Better Death, show notes, links to social media, contact info, listen to the show directly on the site or find links to all major podcast platforms that you can get the show on. If you have personal experiences with death, stories you want to hear on the show, or maybe you just want to say hi to your fellow death nerds, hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, or NoBetterDeath at Gmail. Uh, I've also been trying to be more active on Instagram, so if you haven't followed me, uh, followed the show on Instagram, please do that. It's just it's no better death everywhere except Twitter. It's no better death one. So wherever you're at, you can find me there. I know I keep talking about possible merch and maybe a Patreon, but I haven't had a lot of time to get any of that put together. Just, you know, I kind of told you last week I've been having some stuff going on. Uh, but as soon as I get anything going in that direction, I'll keep you updated. Uh, if you would be so kind, please subscribe, rate, review, share, retweet, whatever you do, wherever you do it, and tell your friends. That's the best way to get word out about the show. Uh, the audience seems to be growing every day, and I really appreciate you guys uh, helping spread the dead word. And I really, really, really times a million appreciate you tuning in every week. The machine in my chest that processes the ones and zeros it receives tells me that it means a lot. I am sick, probably going to get trampled at a concert one day, Grayson. Until next time, try not to die. Okay, where were you and what happened? I was standing right here. I've been here since 6 o'clock this evening. And when they, get, when they opened the doors tonight, everybody just went crazy. There was a girl in front of me. She fell down. and People were stamping on top of her and everything. And I was trying to help her up. And they were just hitting everybody and just trying to kill to get into the concert. What uh, did, did they know that they were trampling on these people? Yes, they know. They were just trampling right on over them like they didn't care. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, what, what happened to you personally during this? They were hitting me and pushing me down. I was trying to help the girl up, and I was getting stamped on too, but I managed to get away from all the people and stand back up. And uh, I lost my ticket, and now I can't get back get in the concert tonight. What did you feel when all of this started happening? I felt that they were going crazy. They just they wanted to kill to get in to see the who. And, uh, and the girl that was on the ground, she was bleeding and everything. She was screaming. I was trying to help her up, and nobody cared. They just let her lay there. I, I really didn't think I would make it. I was really lucky because I know there was a lot of people way back in the center of the crowd that just laid there and they didn't have a chance. I think if I was any further back in the crowd, I wouldn't have made it. We were just shattered. I mean, the whole band is uh, shattered. Um, we just feel helpless at the moment. There doesn't seem to be anything we can do about last night. We just hope to hell it doesn't ever happen again. What do you think caused that mess in Cincinnati. Do you have any thoughts on it? Well, from what we can... I mean, we didn't say anything last night to anybody because we didn't know any facts. Um, I feel that it seems that there are only three entrances for uh, people to uh, get into the hall, and it's just obviously inadequate. And when you get four, four or 5,000 people queuing up to get in and people are falling down in the front, people at the back don't know.
that's kind of domino effect. They all start going over. Um, I think that's probably the main reason. Any type of uh, festival scene? No, we've, we, this is a common thing in rock and roll. I don't, I don't know whose idea it is. I mean, you must understand that we're artists. I mean, all that side of it is usually the decisions there are taken by the, the city hall or the promoter. I don't know. I think it's a city, actually. Um, and it's a common thing in rock and roll. I mean, we've played uh, the Silver Dome in Detroit and filled it with 76,000 people, festival seating, and nobody came out with a bruise. So that, I don't really feel that that is the problem. I really don't. And the night before in Pittsburgh, same seating, great crowd. I mean, it looks like a mess when you're looking at it, but those kids are just boisterous. They're bouncing about, you know. When did you hear about what happened last night? What was your first inclination of what had taken place? We came off, we finished our act um, and won't get fooled again. And we came off and we were asked to do a short encore because they had problems. Um, and by the look on my manager's face, I knew something was serious at that. But I mean, I thought it was a uh, drug overdose or something, you know. Um, and then when we did, we did a very short encore. And we came off and he told us. I mean, we didn't know prior to the show at all. For thousands of parents on Dowling in the Tri-State uh, last night, uh, it was concerned throughout most of the evening until they found out that their youngsters did make it home safely from that concert by the Who at Riverfront Coliseum. The ending, however, was not as fortunate for a number of them. Eleven young persons died. Today the meetings go on. The plaza has been cleaned up now, but last night it was total chaos at the Coliseum. Here's a report now on the happenings from Eyewitness 12's Joanne Moore. A standing room crowd came to Riverfront Coliseum last night to see the popular rock group The Who. But before many of the young fans could get in, there was tragedy. A crowd of five to 6,000 people tried to squeeze through three doors. 11 people were crushed. We have a partial list of the dead. One name is still being withheld at this hour. They are Karen Morrison, aged 15, Cincinnati. 15-year-old Jacqueline Eckerly of Cincinnati. 18-year-old Peter Bowes of Wyoming. Connie Burns of Miamisburg, Ohio. 17-year-old Brian Wagner of Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Tiva Ladd from Newtown. David Heck of Highland Heights, Kentucky. James Warmoth of Franklin. Walter Adams, Jr. of Dayton, Ohio. And 19-year-old Steve Preston of Finneytown. As for the injured, at least 10 people were taken to area hospitals, treated and released. We also have a list of those admitted. But for those who survived the crush, it was a nightmare they won't forget for a long time. People were on top of one another, people were stepping on one another, people have bruises, people have broken bones, people were bleeding, people were throwing up, and the crowd would not move back. It was a mob. Everybody had to fight for their life. It was just, if they would have opened some more doors, you know, it would have been all right. You got here at, at 7 o'clock then when the doors opened. You were already I here. Was, I was here at 4.54. Oh, you were here at 4.54. Uh -huh. The door is open, I understand, at 7 o'clock. Yeah. What was the crowd like then behind you? Were you near the door? Uh, when I got here that early, there was only like about 200, 300 people at the door. And then within a half hour, there were about 500, and then, you know, it just kept multiplying. We just, just kept getting pushed right up against the door. In other words, there was nothing you could do. Once that door opened, uh, you either... That was it. Either you... If you, you went with down, the flow, or you, yeah. you fell on the concrete. If you fell on the ground, that was it. It's all over. The crowd just closed in. People started falling down. There was a tugging back and forth, kind of a mob action. Then you start falling down. Once you were down, you were late for pins, you couldn't get up. 
And according to police, it went something like this. Early in the afternoon, a small crowd began to gather on the Coliseum Plaza. Many there early to take advantage of non-reserve, festival-style, first-come, first-served seating. But by 7 o'clock, the crowd had grown to thousands, punching and shoving. People were knocked off their feet, glass doors broken. At 7.30, police began wading through the crowd. In about half an hour, they began finding bodies. Fire and police paramedics tried desperately to save the injured, but it was no use. When it was over, officials tried to figure out why. As the doors opened, the kids can see that, and they all just started to push. It was just a one massive wave of pushing. You could actually see the kids, they'd push, and they'd kind of fall back and push again. So any that might have fallen in the front were just trampled. How many doors are there? I really would have no idea. I would imagine there are at least 50. But they would open only three. They only open so many just as a matter of controlling the crowd. If our experience has been the more doors you open, the more problems you have. It's just such a rush, rush of people that they tend to overwhelm a lot of doors being opened. Who decided to open three doors only? As far as I know, that's Coliseum management. And then through the night, parents and friends of the dead had the dreadful task of identifying the bodies of loved ones. Police allowed somber, white-faced relatives through the locked door of the Hamilton County morgue throughout the night. But today is a new day. City officials are promising to find answers for questions like, why did this happen? And how can it be prevented next time? The first step, a meeting between Mayor Ken Blackwell and the safety director. I'm Joanne Moore, Eyewitness 12 News. The repercussions from this one will undoubtedly be felt for some time to come. There will be, they say, an official statement from the Riverfront Coliseum officials a bit later on just what happened. I talked with Brian Heakin last night, who is the owner of Riverfront Coliseum. He said he had, would have no comment. Obviously, he had no details of just what happened. Richard Morgan, who is director of operations at the Coliseum, told this reporter that he felt that the Coliseum people had done everything possible to preclude what had happened last night at Riverfront Coliseum. Eyewitness 12 News Extra continues after this.